Our sermon text this morning uh, is long enough where I will go ahead and ask you to sit uh, as we read. It, it hit my level of, uh, of how much we're going to read. And so, as you can see, uh, we're going to do a, a whirlwind trip through the book of Ruth. So, uh, what I tried to do is, is grab selections that give us the gist of the story. I really recommend that, that later today, tomorrow, that you read through the book of Ruth. It should only take about 10, 15 minutes. It's four chapters, and, uh, and, and hopefully it'll help us all kind of retain uh, what we got out of, out of our look at, at Ruth this morning. And so... Uh, Let us begin uh, our reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord from Ruth, chapter 1, and then we'll we'll work our way through what I have before you. So beginning at Ruth, chapter 1, at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No. We will return with you to your people. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where I go, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Then we'll jump to Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Then jumping toward the end of the book in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. 
He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This has been the reading of God's word. We are in the middle of an Advent series called The Mothers of Jesus. We are looking at uh, the the genealogy uh, from Matthew's gospel, uh, which we didn't look at just for the sake of time, but Ruth is mentioned in Matthew's gospel in that genealogy. And the point of that genealogy is Matthew is establishing how Jesus is Israel's legitimate king. He is the long-awaited, long-expected, anointed deliverer that Israel is waiting for. And in this genealogy, Matthew mentions five women by name. Apart from Mary, the church has always been pretty interested in why these four women are listed. You can imagine Jesus had lots of female relatives. Why are these four uh, sprinkled into a genealogy, which is pretty rare, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, they're all outsiders. They're all connected to the Gentile world, and they all have just a hint of scandal, some of them more than just a hint. Now, Ruth herself, she's not really someone that we would say is scandalous, but she comes from a scandalous people. She is a Moabite. She is an outsider of outsiders. Moab was one of the traditional despised enemies of Israel. And really, when you think of Moab, think that they represent rank pagan idolatry as much as any of the surrounding people groups that were around Israel. And we see here from Moab comes comes Ruth, right? And so Ruth, along with the rest of the women listed, they, they, they give us this idea of where Jesus came from. That Jesus is a king for the nations. That that Jesus is the savior of of these kinds of people who have that kind of hint of scandal. Far too often the story of Ruth has been told as a love story between Ruth and Boaz. I remember a few years ago, uh, someone, I think they were being funny, but they said, you know, Ruth is like an ancient Near Eastern rom-com. That stuck with me, but it's not true. Uh, This Christmas season, I've had this weird curiosity of checking out, just for usually five minutes at a time, these, these terrible Christmas movies that Hallmark keeps popping out. Not the, not the classic ones, right, even the air quote classic ones, but these are the ones that, you know, 25 a season get produced, and they're all about the same thing. Everything is decorated in Christmas decorations, right? Like every home has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to, to make their house filled with, with, with Christmas. Uh, and, and in those stories, right, snow, it's never inconvenient. It's always magical, And the idea is that by Christmas Day, you have this unlikely couple that then comes together and everyone feels good about the story. And you can see how Ruth slots in there, right? This beautiful but down-on-her-luck Ruth is taken in by the dashing and successful Boaz. How will this unlikely couple fall in love? Friends, there's a better love story at the center of Ruth. It's just not a romantic love story. It's not about a down-on-her-luck single gal finding love. It's about a bitter, despairing, empty Naomi who we are introduced to in the, in the first scene. And then we see her in the final scene as that same woman, but now she's holding a newborn baby in Bethlehem. And she's full. And she's hope-filled. So the story of Ruth isn't from lonely to in love. It's from emptiness and famine to a grandma whose heart is full. This is Naomi's story as much as Ruth's story, and that's what we're going to explore this morning. Two points as we work our way through this narrative. We'll begin by looking at the hope that Naomi needs, right? Boy, is she in need of some hope, and then we'll see how Ruth brings the hope that Naomi needs. 
All right, so let's unpack this story. Uh, it begins with a famine. We have this family in Bethlehem. Uh, this is true in, in a lot of Old Testament narratives, but names are important. Uh, they're, they're almost humorous in telling the story. So Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. So there's a famine in Bethlehem, which means there is no bread in the house of bread. It's not a good thing. And so they leave the promised land and they go to Moab. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think they were supposed to do that, but they go off. Uh, the family that we're introduced to, the husband's name is Elimelech. That means God is king. Naomi means pleasant. And so God is king and pleasant go down to Moab. Things only get tougher once they're in Moab. Elimelech dies while they're in Moab, and we're told that the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. I also don't think that's a very good idea, that they've taken up Moabite wives. Elimelech has already died in a foreign country. That poses challenges in itself. And then we get more information in chapter 1, verse 4. They live there about 10 years. Now, that's significant. So not only have these, have these boys married Moabite women, they are barren. That's a big deal. There are no babies in this family. And of course, the tragedy keeps unfolding because uh, then Naomi experiences the worst thing a parent can experience. She loses both of her sons. So she has lost her home. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. Um, this is loss of societal value as a woman in this society. Uh, much of her value does come and can she provide a lineage to this household and to this family's name. So she's lost that value. She's lost security. She's lost a future. She's lost everyone and all means of economic support. Presumably her parents are dead. She's too old to remarry. There is no one to look after her. She has lost hope. And at this point, we might want to say that's pretty understandable. It's kind of reasonable that Naomi has lost so much hope. Well, we're told the famine has ceased back in Bethlehem in Judah. And so Naomi decides to return to her hometown. But first she implores these daughters-in-law. And think about this. They have all lived together for 10 years. It's a single home, a single plot of land in Moab. They have lived together for 10 years. We have this deep affection between the three of them. But she implores them, you stay here in Moab because you have a future here. You can get remarried maybe Maybe you have a future. It's not guaranteed, but maybe if you come with me back to Bethlehem, that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. I represent loss. I represent death. It will be bad enough for Naomi, this widow, to go back home. It'll be worse for these Moabite women who throw away their future. Moab's not the most popular place in Israel, remember. These women would be, they'd be strangers. They'd be marginalized. Naomi's love for her daughters-in-law is profound. They both lift up their voices and weep. There are no mother-in-law jokes in this family. Did you get that idea? Naomi wants them to have a future. She begs them to stay in Moab. Let's stop there because this is insight into who Naomi is. The first thing we may think of with Naomi is that she's bitter and she's resigned. And I don't think that's fair. Because the book begins with her love for Ruth and Orpah. For their sake, and at cost to herself, she begs them to go to stay home and not come with her. Orpah eventually agrees and leaves Naomi to stay in Moab. She exits the story, but of course Ruth refuses to leave her mother-in-law's side. And then we have one of those beautiful portions in all of Scripture, the whole Bible. In verse 16 of chapter 1, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge 
your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So Naomi hears this. She hears the determination of Ruth. She's resigned to letting Ruth come with her back home. Two of them come to Bethlehem, and the women come out, and they say, Is this Naomi? It's a powerful scene, isn't it? How bad did Naomi look when she went back home? Ten years, is she even recognizable after all of the trauma, all of the grief, all of the suffering that she's been through? And she says, the the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. She says, no longer call me pleasant, call me bitter. We gain some really powerful insight into this scene because Naomi talks about the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the promise-keeping one. She, she talks about Yahweh, the Lord, when it comes to her daughters-in-law, but for her, she sticks with the Almighty. So she believes in the existence of God. She believes in the power of God. But I don't think she believes that God is good. She doesn't believe that God is for her. I have so much sympathy for Naomi. I've been Naomi for far less reasons. I'm guessing that some of you here this morning have also been Naomi for far less reasons. I'm sure some of you this morning have been like Naomi in very relatable ways. You've understood loss and tremendous grief. I have so much sympathy for Naomi. I think we're supposed to, right? She is a a lover of these women in a powerful way, but she's, she's complicated because human beings are complicated. She is not just the bitter one. She is also the loving one. And we also might say that Naomi at this point, she is not living by faith. She is living by sight. And she's responding accurately to that, that she's living by sight because everything she sees is hopelessness and darkness. But here's the thing, and again, I say this with the utmost respect toward this poor widow. She's also not living by sight very well. She comes to Bethlehem and she says to these women that she is empty. And there is a young woman standing right next to her. There is a woman, Ruth, who has laid down her life, who has sacrificed the potential of a better future out of love toward Naomi. She says, God's hand is against me, and there is Ruth holding Naomi's hand. Naomi is hopeless, and yet the seeds of hope are right next to her. God is at work, she just can't see it. She has lost hope, but the God of hope has not abandoned her. We, as the readers, can already catch a glimpse of that. I hope that you're not in the pit of Naomi, but the realistic side of life is that you'll you'll get pretty close to it at some point if you haven't already been there. There will be a time where you see yourself in her and you will feel enveloped by darkness and your expectations will be crushed. You will look around and you will say, I would never in a million years have written the chapter of my life that I find myself in. What's the story? Because it sure feels like the Almighty's hand is against me. One of the resources I've relied on to kind of do a a rush through Ruth in, in one Sunday is a book called A Loving Life, Uh, by Paul Miller, which I really commend to you. It's a beautiful book all about love through the lens of, of Ruth. And Paul Miller writes this about where Naomi is in the story. This is the problem with Naomi. She's interpreting God through the lens of her experience. 
She stopped in the middle of the story and measured God. A deeper faith waits until the end of the story and interprets experience through the lens of God's faithfulness. But he's a good pastor, so he says, Naomi doesn't need to hear that when she's in the pit. But see, if we're not in the pit, and many of us in this room right now, we're not in that pit, and so now is the time to hear that word, isn't it? He continues, good theology lets us endure quietly with someone else's pain. When all of the pieces are not together, it acts like invisible faith glue. So this is the time, friends, when we are developing that invisible faith glue. Because God has not abandoned Naomi. We know the end of the story. He will not abandon Naomi. Ruth isn't only, by the way, a mother of Jesus. We're already beginning to see that Ruth is a model of him. Naomi's hope begins in a woman who would leave her home and sacrifice her life out of love uh, that would not quit Naomi. And I hope that already begins to sound familiar because even when it's dark and hard to see, your hope begins, my hope begins in an even greater love with the Savior who would leave his home and sacrifice everything, sacrifice his life for you and for me with an even greater love that does not quit. Now let's turn to look at that deeper love, uh, the hope that Ruth brings. All right, the hope that Ruth brings, our second and final point. So we've unpacked Naomi's dire circumstances. The thing is, of course, Ruth's aren't much better. Remember the desperation of Tamar from a couple of weeks ago, if you were here for the first uh, woman that we looked at, the first mother of Jesus we started with a couple of weeks ago. So there's, there's no one to care for Ruth, or at least we're conf- we don't really know her story. It might have been better for her to stay back in Moab. She might have had a future, right? But we just know nothing's guaranteed if she goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem. But she chooses to align herself with Naomi, with Naomi's people, and Naomi's God, She has no prospects in Judah. She will be marginalized as a Moabite foreigner. And so our question as readers is, why does Ruth align herself in the way she does with Naomi? What has happened to Ruth? Why is she such a good companion and good daughter to Naomi? And and I would at least see in our text enough to suggest that at the heart of Ruth's story is the Lord. This is a conversion story. In her vow where she says, there's nothing but death that should separate me, she uses that covenant name of God, the Lord, the promise-keeping one. In her time with Naomi, she has seen enough in Naomi's faith. In Naomi's life, she has seen the goodness and glory of the Lord. I think it's why we need to be careful in just calling Naomi the bitter one. When she calls herself bitter, we can say, you're wrong. You're not the bitter one. You're the complicated one. Ruth had seen Naomi suffer incredible loss, and she sees the dire situation of Naomi again, even through her own dire situation. And Naomi, who loves Ruth, wants to leave her behind for the sake of Ruth. And this is where we see how much Naomi cares about Ruth. This can't be overlooked. Naomi isn't thinking about herself. She's thinking about Ruth. And so what we see in our passage is how Naomi loves Ruth in such a way that has revealed God to Ruth. I want to be with you. I want your God to be my God. Ruth has experienced incredible love from Naomi, and she chooses to pour out even greater love back in return. Ruth models the love that she has received. Naomi begs Ruth to not go with her. My life is over. Yours doesn't have to be. And Ruth makes the hard choice, and she joins herself to Naomi. She dies to herself in love for her mother-in-law. 
And so Ruth enters Bethlehem so incredibly vulnerable. Here's what one writer says. Without a male protector, Ruth is sexually vulnerable. Without money, she is financially destitute. Without a friend, she is lonely. And without her country, she is open to prejudice. She has no protector, husband, tribe, family, or food. Furthermore, she is shouldering the responsibilities of a man. When they come to Bethlehem, Ruth goes out to work to support both of them. She goes to the fields, and, and she, she's worse than a day laborer. She's really a beggar. She goes and she receives the scraps that have fallen from the field. And then in Ruth 2.3, we have this turning point when we read that Ruth just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Just so happened, wink, wink. Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. He is a kinsman redeemer. What this means is that he's in the family, and so he is eligible to go redeem Elimelech's land and keep it in the family. And it just so happened, out of all of the fields that Ruth could have gleaned on, it just so happened that she goes to one of the few individuals that could help her. And what gets Boaz's attention of Ruth, right, is her reputation, We don't know if he thought she was cute or not. That wasn't the point. The point is, is what gets his attention is her reputation. He has heard of her love for Naomi, and so he in turn cares for her and provides for her and protects her. And when Ruth brings home the news to Naomi, Naomi is no longer empty because now she has hope restored. And she starts to see, hey, you know what? Maybe God's hand didn't abandon me. In chapter 3, what we read, Naomi concocts a plan and sends Ruth to Boaz after he has had a merry old time partying at the time of harvest. Go to him and make sure you look good, you smell nice. And while he's sleeping, go cuddle up next to him and then he will tell you what to do. Now we know what Naomi has sent Ruth to do. I don't understand any other interpretation other than we all know why Naomi sent Ruth to Boaz. But... Notice that when Boaz wakes up, Ruth doesn't say, tell me what to do. She takes control of the situation. She says, we all know what you can do. This is a proposal. She's saying, marry me. She takes the lead in the story, and in so doing, she restores hope. And what's amazing is that this hope isn't just about an old widow living the the remainder of her life in peace No, it's that a Moabite gleaning in Boaz's field is just part of the thread of the story of how God would redeem all creation. A child is born, and Naomi rocks this baby whose grandson would change how Bethlehem would in the future be known as the city of David, and in that city of David, a greater son, Jesus, would be born. And so is Ruth the love story? Yeah, it is. There just isn't anything sentimental about this love story. There's nothing cheesy about it. Love costs. Love is expensive. That's what Ruth tells us. It's not because you buy your loved one presents that love is expensive. It's that you have to give yourself. Because at the center of love is death. Death to self. Ruth has been loved by Naomi with such a love that for the sake of Naomi, Ruth is willing to die to herself. Ruth loves Naomi in a way that puts Naomi first. Boaz sees the costly love of Ruth, which blows him away. And he loves Ruth and Naomi in a way that is costly to him. Remember, he's a kinsman redeemer, which means that Boaz's child born benefits Elimelech, not Boaz. It's why when grandma is rocking little Obed, the women say that a son has been born to whom? To Naomi. 
So Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus because he is the king for the nations. He is the king for even people of scandal. But Ruth also shows us uh, who the long-awaited king is, what he will be like. Love in our culture is many things. It's many things. It's sentimental, it's abstract, it's vague, it's cheap. Think about those, those stupid Christmas movies I was talking about at the, at the beginning, right? Uh, about two good-looking people overcoming some kind of obstacle, right? Maybe a temperamental obstacle, an economic obstacle, a family drama obstacle, and then what? Well, then they have their kiss by the Christmas tree, but it's not really love at all, right? Love has to begin after that. Those are infatuation stories at best. Now, the book of Ruth reminds us that love is the most concrete thing in the world. Ruth takes up a cross of her own to commit herself to the good of Naomi. And then Ruth's greater son, Jesus, reminds us more than Ruth herself that love truly is the most specific, concrete thing in the world. The eternal son of God leaving his home to be born in a very real manger to a very real young woman with very real birth pangs with actual shepherds in an actual city of Bethlehem. It's love that endured our world in all of its very real brokenness. It's love that became marginalized and vulnerable like Ruth. It's love that bore the weight of our sin and death experienced in very real nails torn through very real flesh. For us in our salvation out of love, the Almighty's hand was against him, Jesus, so that we might be assured it is not and will never be against us. The application of this is how is it that we can go forward in love? To be dams of love is, is normally what it is, but we need to be rivers. And so how is it that we can love? Um, it's Christmas time, right? So we can think of difficult family members. How do we love them? How do we love people that have hurt us, people that have offended us? Uh, how about this one? How can we love the most important people in our lives who feel the brunt of our being so bad at loving? I know you can relate to that. Why are those that we say we love the most those who experience the worst versions of us? Well, how is it that Ruth loved? She had experienced the love of God through the love of Naomi, right? <laughs> She models that love in, in a more powerful way than what she received from Naomi. And so the question again, how can we love? And maybe no one has loved you with that same kind of Naomi love. But friends, in the gospel, you have been loved with something even greater. Do you believe it? Do you grasp it? Do you live and do you love as if it were true? The love of God through the love of Jesus, a love that we can know, a love that we can return to, a love that we can taste and see at this table that's before us, a love that proclaims that the Almighty is not against us, but he is for us. And it's from this love that we go forth into the world under the providential care of God. That's the other theme of, of Ruth, isn't it? It's a love story for sure. It's also a story of providence, of God upholding all things, sustaining all things, including us. There are no miracles in Ruth. God is mentioned a lot, but it's always through the prayers of the people or through the speeches of people, but there are no angels or certainly are no stars guiding wise men. You just have Ruth who happens to come to a field. And yet, wouldn't you say that God is no less at work in this story? Even when Naomi can't see it, even when Ruth can't see it, even when you and when I can't see it, we can know God is at work. 
What a message for us. God is at work even in those chapters that we can't make sense of. God is at work even in our broken hearts. Ruth is as much as anything a story of hope in a world that often looks and feels like there is none. But hope is found in the God who is sovereign and at work for his glory and for your good. Ruth is a story of hope included in God's greater story of redemption, uh, the redemption of all things, which is a story that picks up right where Ruth ends, a baby born in Bethlehem. It's a story of hope and that love did come down at Christmas in the most specific and concrete way, not to show us love, not merely to model love, but in real, tangible, concrete love to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word, which includes even little stories, little vignettes, four chapters of the story of a woman Women struggling, scrapping, trying to figure out life in a, in a way and in, in a world that, that often just appears to be against them. And yet, Lord, through that story, you communicate these truths that are so powerful and so gripping for our lives, stories of, of the costliness of love, stories of your providential care, and so, Lord, whoever we identify with in this story, whether we're in a season of feeling like Naomi, or whether we feel the weight and the burden of Ruth, as we're reminded that love isn't all easy and lovey-dovey, but it's costly, it's hard. Death is at the center of love. Lord, would even this story take us into the greatest story of love, the cross? Your work done. Your work accomplished, start to finish, out of your great love for your people. Lord, would that animate our relationships? Would that animate the way we look at others? Lord, would that animate um, our knowledge and understanding that even when the world and our lives don't appear to offer much hope, we are reminded that we have the, the most supreme reasons for hope in your love and in your promises toward us. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, seal those truths to our hearts? And praise in Jesus' name, amen.